Welcome back in to Talks on the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I am your instructor, David L. Gray, Master of Arts in Theology. And we begin in Nomine Pacis, Ephilio, Espiritu Sancti. In this talk, I will be highlighting section 2, chapter 3, called I Believe in the Holy Spirit. This chapter contains an even larger block of paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church than will be covered in our previous talk on that part of the Creed, which begins with, I believe in Jesus Christ. So, one might wonder why it is that the Catholic Church found more to teach about the Holy Spirit than it did about our, um, our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would say, well, indeed, I think that wonderful musing provides the perfect segue to enter into the lecture for this section. Beginning with paragraph number 683 all the way through paragraph number 1065, again, the purpose of this lecture series is to not to walk you through each one of those paragraphs, but rather to supplement your own reading of them by me adding context, color, some background, some history, and most importantly, connecting it to the liturgy of the church, which is our highest form of prayer. So, so that I would say that you might better understand, better appreciate the rich theology of the Catholic church and also to discover how the church is guiding us to live our lives liturgically. So I am so excited to share this teaching with you because now we'll be able to connect all the loose and dangling concepts that have been lingering out there for the last two talks about the nature of the Holy Trinity. Um, and what makes this really, this whole creed such a beautiful and timeless work. Also, we will get a chance in this lecture to open up our, our theological imagination as we read the first of only two times that the Catholic Church decided to speak about herself and her ecclesiology, that is, the nature of the church. In context, a span of nearly 2,000 years have passed since Christ Jesus established his church through his apostles. And over 1,600 years has passed since the church first spoke of herself and define her dimensions and her transcendent reality. In the spring of 325 AD, by the order of Emperor Constantine, over 200 bishops of the Catholic Church assembled in the Great Hall of the Imperial Residence of Nicaea to respond to the call to put an end to the quarrels and the dissensions which had arisen over the doctrine of the Heresarch Arius. In condemning Arianism by promulgating that Jesus Christ is God and consubstantial, in Latin he is homiosus, with the Father. The council stopped short in this creed that was authored by Bishop Osius of Cordova, who was the president of the council, 
it stops short of um, this creed by him to uh, speak specifically on a life of the church. It didn't want to go that far. So it wouldn't be until 381 AD when 150 bishops of the East gathered in Constantinople that the church would affirm the findings of the aforementioned Council of Nicaea and take in the findings of Athanasius of Salamis in his Ancaratus written in 374 AD and um, the baptismal creed of Jerusalem written around circa 362 AD and promulgated a new creed which omitted nothing from the creed of Nicaea but added more to the second person in the Holy Trinity. For example, according to the scriptures and is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, in whose kingdom there will be no end. Most especially, they had a great deal to say about the pre-existing and the supernature of the church in the Holy Spirit, saying, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who is proceeding from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who spoke through the prophets in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the remission of sins, and we await the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. It may have caught your attention here that the Constantinople Creed has the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father alone. Here the Catechism of the Catholic Church gives some historical background in paragraphs 246 through 248, saying, The Latin tradition of the Creed confesses that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, the Philoche. The Council of Florence in 1438 explains, The Holy Spirit is eternally from the Father and Son. He has his nature in substance at once from the Father and the Son. He proceeds eternally from both as from one principle through one spiration. And since the Father has, through generation, given to the only begotten Son everything that belongs to the Father, except being the Father, the Son has also eternally from the Father, from whom He is eternally born, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. 247. The affirmation of the Philoche does not appear in a creed confessed in 381 at Constantinople, but Pope St. Leo I, following an ancient Latin and Alexandrian tradition, had already confessed it dogmatically in 447 AD, even before Rome in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon came to recognize and receive the Synod of 381. 
The use of this formula in the creed was gradually admitted into the Latin liturgy between the 8th and 11th centuries. The introduction of the Philoche into the Nicio Constantinople Creed by the Latin liturgy constitutes moreover, even today, a point of disagreement with the Orthodox churches. 248. At the outset of the Eastern tradition, expresses the Father's character as first origin of the Spirit by confessing the Spirit as He who proceeds from the Father. It affirms that He comes from the Father through the Son. The Western tradition expresses first the consubstantial communion between the Father and Son by saying that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It says this legitimately and with good reason for the eternal order of the divine persons in their consubstantial communion implies that the Father, as the principle without principle, is the first origin of the Spirit, but also that as Father of the only Son, He is with the Son the single principle from which the Holy Spirit proceeds. This legitimate, complementary, provided it does not become rigid, does not affect the identity of faith in the reality of the same mystery confessed. Yes, it was in the new or latter section of the Nicene Constantinople Creed beginning with and in the Holy Spirit that the Catholic Church first offered in in ecclesiology her nature and began to speak of her temporal dimensions and her transcendent reality, that is, where she calls herself one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. It wouldn't be until 1,083 years later when the Catholic Church would speak about herself, her ecclesiology again on that occasion at the Second Vatican Council in her 1964 dogmatic constitution called Lumen Gentium. Before we can discuss the third and final section, let us again recapitulate the formula of the creed. In the previous two instructions or confessions about the Father and the Son, They both informed us about the names by which the first two persons of the Holy Trinity are rightfully called, Father Almighty and Lord Jesus Christ. They also highlighted the origin and personhood of the Father and the Son. God is one. He has no source and no beginning. And Jesus Christ is his only begotten Son. Next, the creed instructs us about the life and works of the Father and the Son. The Father is creator and the Son is for the salvation of man. With this pattern in place, it would then seem to therefore follow that the final paragraph would also instruct us on the name, origin, and works of the third person of the Holy Trinity. 
It would not therefore logically follow that the creed would include a fourth person or entity that that is somehow not in relation to the one nature of God. But I know there is some confusion in the fact that there are four we believe confessions instead of three. That we confess not only a belief in the three persons of the Holy Trinity, but also a belief in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It was seen that this fourth confession signifies a separate part of the creed, perhaps. And as much as uh, we will see that the, the church teaches that the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is the life mission, is part of the life mission um, of the Holy Spirit, I understand that it can it can be confusing confusing to, to see this break in the pattern of the creed when nowhere else does the creed make this confession of faith, uh, I believe statements about the life and works of the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, the final section of the creed begins, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. As evident, this section follows the well-established pattern in the creed by addressing the name by which the third person is rightly called, Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, whose origin and personhood springs from the one divine substance of the Father and the Son, out of which he proceeds and through which he shares in glory and adoration. What is special about this addition to the creed is its attempt at redundancy that really makes the whole work poetic. This is one of those dangling concepts I mentioned earlier. Notice that in the earlier parts of the creed, Jesus Christ was given the title Lord. Paragraph 449 of the Catechism states, By attributing to Jesus the divine title Lord, the first confessions of the church's faith affirm from the beginning that the power, honor, and glory due to God the Father are due also to Jesus because he was in the form of God and the Father manifested the sovereignty of Jesus by raising him from the dead and exalting him into his glory. Therefore, now, when a creed adds that the Holy Spirit is also the Lord, it is being redundant in two ways. First, to say that the Holy Spirit truly does proceed from the divine nature. And for this reason, we can speak of the Holy Spirit in the same language as we can speak of the Son. But also secondarily to say, that because the Holy Spirit is Lord, the Holy Spirit is due the same reverence and honor as the Father and the Son. This teaching will be repeated shortly 
when the creed states, With the Father and the Son, He, the Holy Spirit, is worshipped and glorified. Another dangling thread and beautiful pattern is also available now for our amazement or our wonder and for our marvel. It's where we confess that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit shared a title Lord. This sharing in the title Lord between the second and third persons of the Holy Trinity it not only signifies how intimately their missions are connected, but also their relationship with each other. In the same way that the title Only Son of God signifies how intimately Jesus is connected with his Father. Therefore, we have hints here in the Creed that the Son is intimately connected with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. But what hints does the Creed give us that all three persons of the Holy Trinity are connected with each other? To answer that question, we must examine those parts of the creed concerning their work of creation together, which we first read about in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, saying, Let us make man in our image. The creeds in see and Constantinople imagine the triune relationship in this way, saying, that the Father is maker of heaven and earth, the Son through which all things were made, and the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. In, words, in other words, the eternal Father is maker, the Son for whom all things were made, and the Holy Spirit is he who gives life to those things that were made by the Father and through the Son. As paragraph 703 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, The Word of God and His breath are at the origin of the being and life of every creature as men and women made in the image and likeness of God through the Son and given life to by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we do not realize how much like God we are. Even in the fact that we cannot speak words without breathing is evidence that we were made by God and like God. Let us bear witness to the fact that in every word we utter, we also breathe. It is through our breath that we send forth our words into the world. Therefore, we witness to the fact that our words and our breath lack distance from each other. They are completely and intimately united with each other, with God. The Catechism states in paragraph 689, When a father sends his word, he also sends his breath. In their joint mission, the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct but inseparable. And in 690, Jesus is Christ anointed because the Holy Spirit is his anointing. In everything that occurs from the incarnation on, 
the rise from this fullness when Christ is finally glorified, he can in turn send the Spirit from his place with the Father to those who believe in him. He communicates to them his glory, that is, the Holy Spirit who glorifies him from that time on. This joint mission will be manifested in the children adopted by the Father in the body of his Son. The mission of the Holy Spirit of adoption is to unite them to Christ and to make them live in him. And notice where the creed explains how the work of Christ on earth was mysteriously connected to him, being inseparably united with the Holy Spirit, saying, He came down from heaven, and by the power of the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Now where the creed explains how the work of the Holy Spirit on earth was mysteriously connected to him being inseparable from Christ Jesus, saying, The Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. This inseparability of the mission of Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit cannot be overemphasized, especially regarding the point that I'm about to make here. Again, Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit, although distinct from one another, are also inseparable as word and breath. Yet, the breath of God comes to uniquely dwell in us through baptism, which makes us a member of the body of Christ. Therefore, in the body of Christ, we not only share the same breath, but also the same anointing. And if Christ and the Holy Spirit are intimately inseparable, and that breath also now lives in us, how close to God then are the baptized? Our life in Christ is the breath of God. I believe that if we were just to live in that truth, we wouldn't sin. I would love to just sit here and more deeply contemplate this mystery of the inseparability of word and breath of God. And in us, the, the word and the breath that, that lives in us. But let us continue for now. The remainder of the third section of the creed is a confession about our belief in the life and work of the Holy Spirit, which is to unify and to gather the people of God into the one communion through which Jesus Christ effects his work of salvation. This gathering can uniquely be found wherever and whenever the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets, and finally culminated in the one holy Catholic in the Apostolic Church. Did you notice how I just moved from one sentence to the next there? I said, this gathering can be uniquely found whenever and wherever the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets and finally culminated 
in the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. That's is, that is exactly how we mindlessly recite the creed at times, saying, He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I think we should pause there for a moment. Right there after saying, He has spoken through the prophets. What? For that confession not only expresses our belief in the existence and our union with the communion of God's people before the Pentecost event, but also that the same Holy Spirit who has spoken through the prophets, who God used to call his people into his ecclesia, is also the same Holy Spirit who now dwells in us. The spirit that God spoke through the prophets is now in us as our breath that forms, that is intimately connected to our words. Yes, we actually confess that we believe that God, the same God who spoke through the prophets, now dwells in us. Again, I would love to just sit here and contemplate more deeply with you about how, if we truly believe that, that the God who spoke through the breath of the prophets is now the same breath in us. That breath is our words. And we waste our words in a sense when we speak trivially, therefore. Sometimes immorally, therefore. Sometimes carelessly, therefore. Yet, this is how the liturgy of the Mass is trying to form us and, and teach us how to use our words and our breath with our words. And, 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 and that's why the liturgy tells us what to pray and how to pray, what to confess and how to confess, what words the scriptures we need to hear so that we might breathe those words of God in and out. He has spoken through the prophets. Pause. End of stanza. Just as the creed in Nicaea addresses the divinity of Christ and then moves to confess our belief in his life being divine and human, so too does the creed address the divinity of the Holy Spirit before it moves on to confess our belief in the work of the Holy Spirit with Jesus Christ on earth. Beginning with the statement, with the confession, we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. It is through these four marks, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, that the church has traditionally both theologically and historically, sought to explain and to demonstrate how she fully embodies all that Christ intended when he gave her life on earth. For a moment, I'm going to propound to you a series of theological statements about the Holy Spirit's nature and mission within the marks of the church being one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. These seven statements, and, and please feel free to listen to them a few times because they, they, they are dense, but they're going to serve the purpose of closing the loop 
in tying together those remaining, um, those dangling concepts that, that remain out there. So, so that we can then move forward, we can proceed into the sacramental life of the Catholic Church. The first statement is as follows, that if God is now engaged in a work of bestowing upon a world all that is good, through a, a universal gathering of his people, then it necessitates that his sacrament for gathering his people must have always had as a first principle the work of assembling a universal gathering of those he has called. We can say that such a gathering would require that that, that community, that ecclesia, to have four marks. The first mark is that that community should have always been one with God. Second, being that it should have always been a beacon of light. That is, consistently reflecting the light of God in all that she proclaims to be fully true. Uh, being a light that shines, not for vanity's sake, not shine for vanity's sake, but so that those who are cold uh, might always be able to find her, even in the darkness. Uh, she should always been a light that may have looked different in various covenants, but a light that has always been known to the prophets who she has spoken through. She has never been a lamp that you hide under a bushel, just always present. Third, being the fullness of God's grace, that is, herself being a visible sacrament to the world, she must have always been visible, never a secret. And fourth, being um, or consisting of all peoples who God sends her. That is, she should have always been universal. While we must believe that these four essential marks at Ecclesia were always present in God's community, and from Scripture we can see that they were, we must also confess that they were not perfectly available until the Ecclesia was fulfilled at the New Covenant Pentecost. There is a counter idea that is really too foolish to waste our words and breath on. So I won't, but only mention it here in summary. The idea of some invisible church that connects God's people in some loose agreements of the bare minimum list of essentials and non-essentials or some visible church of competing denominations is an idea that is most unlike God. Concerning the necessity of a church that is both visible and spiritual, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 771 says, The Mediator, Christ, established and ever sustains here on earth His Holy Church, the community of faith, hope, and charity, as a visible organization through which he communicates truth and grace to all men. The church is at the same time a society structure with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ, the visible society and the spiritual community, the earthly church and the church endowed with heavenly riches. In other words, as Christ Jesus is both visible and spiritual because he's both divine and human, 
so too is the Catholic Church, the Church of Christ, both visible and spiritual, because it is both divine and human. As we were able to find Christ and follow him when he walked among us, so too does the church, the visible and spiritual body of Christ, walk among us today as a structured society, a visible society, and a spiritual community. All together, one body of many sinners, just as Christ Jesus was one body for many sinners. The second statement is that there was never a time that the church was not. That is, the ecclesia of God's people has a pre-existent nature. Otherwise, we should not call the church one or holy or Catholic if her foundations are of this earth. Nor could she raise our nature up to Christ if she were below his nature. On the contrary, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is the church, has a divine nature and a human nature, which is not perfectly hypostatic like Christ, but through the work of the Holy Spirit, who is inseparable from Christ, is working to perfect our human nature with the divine nature of Christ. The liturgy of the Mass calls this work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us divinization. Therefore, the Ecclesia, which came to be uniquely visible with the, um, the covenant made with Abraham and later through the blood of Jesus, is like he whom is her head and spouse. She too is one holy, whole, universal, Catholic, and has been available to all people at all times. Prophetic, apostolic. The third statement is, the four properties of the church, that she's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, are essential. That is, these properties belong to her essence, the nature of who she is. Catholic theologian Benoit Dominique de la Soleil identifies these traditional four properties of the church as being essential because they are inseparable from the very being of the subject. For example, if the church ceased to be holy, then the whole church as such would disappear. One property cannot exist without the other. No more than a sacrifice of Christ can exist without the love of Christ. In other words, if God's state of being is love, then God loving us would be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Therefore, there is only one way to speak of the Church of the Holy Trinity. That is, being one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Because without these four properties, the nature of the Church is completely foreign to the nature of the Holy Trinity. The fourth statement is, to be a member of the Church, the body of Christ, is to be like the church. 
For in the beginning we were made in her image and likeness. For she was, is, and will be one with her spouse. The church is fully the body of Christ, in that it is the household of those who are in Christ. The church, therefore, is our Lord Jesus Christ means, his physical body on earth of which he is the head, to fulfill the mission of the kingdom of God, and it is where he reigns as king in his real presence, to give himself away to those whose faith makes them subjects, slaves, and friends to his authority and grace. The fifth statement is, The oneness of God, proclaimed throughout the scriptures, expressed in the creeds, and taught in the Catholic Church's doctrine on the Holy Trinity, necessarily implies that in God there are no doctrinal factions or divisions. For example, there is only one teaching. Likewise, the first thing we know about the church is that she is one because she participates in the one nature of God. But in consequence of her being one, She is also those things that flow out of the divine unity. That is, flowing out of her divine unity is holiness, wholeness, universality, Catholicity, and being available to all people at all times. The church is God's perpetual sign of love and his perpetual instrument a divine solidarity, and finally, the sixth statement is, being that the church is not God, but is one with him, this divine reality affirms his transcendent nature and her unique inseparability from the mystical body of Christ, which the Niceo-Constantinople Creed signals in that part beginning, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who is proceeding from the Father for this reason. A church with a transcendental nature necessitates that she has a transcendental liturgy through which we might be lifted up into heaven rather than dragged down into the world. It is through this covenantal gathering of the Holy Spirit by which man cooperates with Jesus Christ in his salvation by receiving one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, which prepares him and gives him hope for the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. Insane I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. The creed is extremely brief in confessing the sacramental life of the church and how we are called as a people of God, hierarchical and laity and consecrated to participate in that life. 
there will be more sufficient space in the upcoming lectures to more fully explain what the sacraments of the church are and how we are called to live our life through them. Yet for now, how might we summarize this first uh, ecclesiological confession of the church and what she has decided to reveal about herself to the world back in the fourth century? We might say that these two earlier creeds are more than just simple confessions we, we recite at the sacrifice and the Mass. On the contrary, they are the resolutions of the Fathers of the Church in response to the Arian and Neo-Arian heresies concerning the origin, nature, life, and works of the three persons of the Holy Trinity. And it is fitting that the Catholic Church should be included in the creeds as part of the life of the Holy Spirit. According to St. Irenaeus, for where the church is, there also is God's Spirit. Where God's Spirit is, there is the church in every grace. It is just as impossible to speak of the church without speaking of Christ as it is to speak of Christ without speaking of his church, because they are inseparable, because of the love and mission of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the Niceo-Constantinople Creed discloses to us, in the clearest language possible at that time, that the church is both a divine and human institution, institution, that is both divine and human, an institution consisting of two natures, one divine and one human. A nature, one that is descending to save and consisting of a nature that is necessarily being saved. One nature that is descending and one that is being lifted up. It's beautiful. In our next encounter, I look forward to sharing with you the Catholic Church's teaching on the celebration of the Christian mystery, which is the liturgy and liturgies. Thank you for listening.